The following audio content is a talk given at The Inn, a college ministry of University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website at www.upc.org forward slash university. We invite you to join us each Tuesday at 9 p.m. on the corner of 47th and 16th in Seattle's U District. I'm Janie, and um, I went to the University of Washington. Um, I went there the same time as Ryan Church. We actually graduated the same year. But unlike Ryan, the guy that um, spoke the last couple of weeks, the guy with the giant hair, I don't know if you guys saw the picture of Ryan with the giant hair. I didn't have giant hair in college because um, I was hip. I was cool. So it was, it was the mid-90s, right? It was grunge. There was lots of flannel. It, I was lucky if I brushed my hair. But um, what year, the freshmen that are here, what year were you guys born? 91, 92? Okay. Well, I have a picture of myself, actually, from 1991. That is my big hair. So that's my big hair, um, spiral perm. I think what's most impressive is my bangs. That was curl, rat, hairspray, curl, rat, hairspray. Over and over and over again. Um, and that shirt was a spree. Love that shirt. I wore it all the time. So my bed hair was actually from the year that many of you were born, which is crazy to think about. Um, I was in junior high. And that that was um, probably my most, my most tragic bad hair. But don't get me wrong. Spiral perms are coming back. The 80s are in now. It won't. Right around the corner, you guys are going to be like, oh, I, I'm going to go get a perm today. Right? No one ever says that anymore. So... You can take that picture down now, Victor, if you want to. Okay. Um, So for those of you who've been here, the series that we've been going through this quarter is called Doubters Anonymous. Hi, I'm Janie, and I'm a doubter. We're going through scripture, and yeah, that's right, you're supposed to respond, hello. Um, We're going through scripture, and we... (laughs) We're looking at different people who are doubters when it comes to their relationship with God. They had great faith, but they also struggled with doubt. And often when it comes to faith, we think that if we have enough faith, all the doubt's going to be eliminated, right? But these biblical characters show us that as humans, doubt is real in our lives. It's something that we struggle with. And actually, what they show us is that their faith became stronger, not in spite of their doubts, but actually because of their doubts. Because it was the doubts that they had that drew them closer to God. And what we want to, what we want to talk about is that doubt doesn't show that you have a weak faith. It can actually lead us to stronger faith if we don't avoid doubt, but actually face the doubts we have head on. The series came about because as a staff, we acknowledge that in the conversation we have with you guys as college students, Really, it's this time of life when your faith is becoming your own. So you're trying to figure out what that looks like. And maybe you were raised in a Christian home and coming to college for the first time, you're thinking, wow, you know, I, I need to figure out what my faith, what I want my faith to look like. I want to figure out what, um, how God and I relate, what that looks like, and also the way that God's at work in the world. But the thing is, as you guys are trying to discover more of what your faith looks like, it comes with lots and lots of questions. That's really what we, that's what, really what we deal with a lot when it comes to college. And if we're honest as a staff, we also struggle with doubt in our own faith. 
And we're honest with each other about the doubts that we have. And what we want to communicate in this series is that as you continue on in your faith journey, doubt will continue to be a reality that you're dealing with. And even though it can be frustrating and it can cause angst and grief and anger, doubt can also draw us into closer relationship with God. Keep us moving forward as we discover more of who God is in our life, who God is creating us to be, and what our faith is going to look like. Frederick Buechner is a great Christian author and novelist, and um, he puts it this way. Whether your faith is that there is a God or is not a God, if you don't have any doubts, you are either kidding yourself or asleep. Doubts are the ants in the pants of faith. Ants in the pants of, their, of our faith doubt, they keep it awake and moving. I think that's important for us to acknowledge when it comes to doubt, when it comes to faith and how they work together. So before we take a look at the biblical character that we're going to look at tonight, which is Moses, I want to stop a minute and just pray that God would be present with us tonight here. So let's stop and pray. Gracious God, we thank you that you are present in our lives. We thank you that you are present in our doubts just as much as you are in our faith. And Lord, we thank you for the person of Moses. And we pray that your presence would be known here with us tonight, that you would be at work in our hearts and in our minds, and that we could learn from your servant Moses. We pray all things, these things in your holy name. Amen. Well, last week, Ryan started out our series, well, it was actually the second week, but the first couple of characters, and he looked at Abraham and Sarah. Now, they were a great couple to start with, because not only did they have doubt, there they are, that's Abraham and Sarah, um... Not only did Abraham and Sarah have doubt, they laughed in God's face. God said, you're going to have a kid. They had been infertile for 100 years, their entire lives, right? They were barren. God says, you're going to have a kid. And they're like, yeah, right. Yeah, that's going to happen. They laughed at God. And that's how we saw their doubt. But they also rested in the hope that the promises God made to them, the covenant God made to them, that they would have a son, that they would have... um, more numerous than the stars would be their descendants. They trusted, they stood in that hope in the midst of the doubts that they had. Well, this week, from Abraham and Sarah, we're actually going to jump a few hundred years in the future. We're going to do a sprint through the book of Genesis and the first couple of weeks of Exodus. And are you guys familiar with flannel graph? Did you ever have flannel graph when you were a kid when you grew up in Sunday school? All right, flannel graph was awesome, right? For those of you who aren't familiar with it, it's like this giant piece of, of felt that your Sunday school teacher would have, and then they would have these like little pictures, biblical characters that would stick on the board. When I was six years old, that was like magic. You put it on the board, and I'd be like, oh, it sticks, it doesn't fall off. Um, I don't have flannel graph for us tonight, but instead we're going to use the brick testament in order to sprint through Genesis and the beginning of Exodus. So we're going to tell this story quickly with Legos. All right, so... Um, it's Brick Testament is great. It's on the worldwide waste of time if you want to check it out sometime. All these biblical stories are on there. Okay, so here's how we get from point A of Abraham and Sarah to point B of Moses. Um, and this is really like a few hundred years later. And if you don't know, the Bible isn't just a random collection of stories. You know, stories that they found in some clay pots. All right, slap these babies together. 66 books, here we go. 
The Bible is actually one giant story. It's a big narrative, and all of these stories are connected to each other. And we can see that the, the way that God connected to someone like Abraham and Sarah was very similar to the way that God connected to those people, disciples in the New, in the New Testament, which is awesome. I think that's a really exciting thing about scripture. But Abraham and Sarah, they lived in the land of Canaan. And the land of Canaan became Israel. Um, it's actually located in the same place that modern day Israel was. And they had a son named Isaac. And then Isaac had, um, a couple son, a couple kids, and one of them was named Jacob, um, and then Jacob, he had a bunch of kids as well. He had a big family. Later on in Jacob's life, God comes to Jacob and changes his name to Israel. Okay, so Jacob slash Israel um, has a bunch of kids, and one of his kids was named Joseph. Now Joseph ends up in Egypt. He ends up in Egypt as an official there um, through a series of events. Turns out, up in the land of Canaan, they had this drought, and so um, they didn't have enough to eat. So Joseph arranges for Jacob and Jacob slash Israel and his whole family to come down to Egypt um, in order for them to live there. So Jacob slash Israel's whole family comes down to Egypt, and God told them, "What I want you guys to do, my covenant with you, is I want you to be fruitful and multiply." All right, so they got busy, and they had a lot of kids. Look at that. They, there were lots of Legos. Um, so this family became known as the Israelites, right, from Jacob slash Israel. They became known as the Israelites, and they lived in Egypt. And it, a long time later, an Egyptian king, a pharaoh, noticed, gosh, there are a lot of these Israelites. So what we need to do, we need to enslave the Israelites. Um, they're going to become more powerful. So they became slaves to the Egyptians. There they are. They're working hard, breaking their back. Um, so the Israelites were slaves. And um, still, the Egyptian king was like, wow, they're still, you know, they're, they're still multiplying. They're still being very fruitful. So the Egyptian king says, we're going to have every single Israelite boy thrown in the Nile and drown. And this one particular family decides that they aren't going to obey this. Probably more than one, but we know about one. This woman takes her son and she puts him in a basket in the Nile. Um, so she doesn't obey. She puts him in the, in the Nile. And then one day an Egyptian princess comes down and she finds the baby and she says, Oh, it's one of the little Hebrews. And she decides <laughs> that she wants... <laughs> He's got a full head of hair. It's great. Um... She decides that she wants him to be her son, but she gets an Israelite woman to raise him, to nurse him until he no longer needs to be nursed. And then, so he lives with the Israelite for a while, the Israelites for a while, and then he goes and lives with the Egyptian princess, and he is raised as an Egyptian. Now, it's important to note that the Israelite names him Moses, and it's important to note, check out this history of Moses' life. He has really got an a interesting history. He was raised as an Israelite for part of his life, and then he was also raised as an Egyptian for part of his life, and that'll come into play in, in his future. Now, back to the story. When Moses becomes a man, he is witnesses an Israelite being whipped by an Egyptian, by being tortured. I don't know if it says, I don't think it says whipped in scripture, but anyways, he's being tortured. Moses gets fired up. He kills the Egyptian. Yeah. (laughs) 
And he buries him in the sand. There he is. Somehow he broke up all the Lego parts and he put him and buried him in the sand. It becomes clear to Moses that the Pharaoh knows about this, so he knows that he has to get away. He runs far away. He runs to the land of Midian. In the land of Midian, he starts his life. Um, he marries a woman and becomes a shepherd. Grows a beard. He becomes a shepherd. He's still kind of got that like cockeyed eyebrow thing going. It's great. He becomes a shepherd, and he wanders around in the wilderness with a flock of sheep following him. This also become, is interesting when you think about the life of Moses, that he's wandering, his, his job is to wander around the, in the wilderness, wander around the desert with some sheep following him. So, that brings us up to speed to the specific story that we're going to look at today. It should also give you a picture of how scripture is connected, specifically how the people from last week, Abraham and Sarah, the covenant and the relationship that God had with Abraham and Sarah is the same covenant, the same relationship throughout Israel's history, and it's the same relationship that God has with Moses as well. That continues all through Scripture. So we're actually going to pick up this story in Exodus chapter 3. Um, and if you have your Bibles, feel free to open to Exodus chapter 3. We encourage you to bring your Bibles um, every week at the end. We are going to be looking at Scripture. Um, what we do is take a look at the Bible and try to t- apply that to how we live our lives today, and we encourage you to bring your Bibles. If you don't have your Bibles, we have some free ones available, but we will also have it up on the screen as well. So um, Exodus chapter 3, starting at verse 1. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, Here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Left out the slash Israel, but you get the point. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. So right away, Moses believes that it is God that is speaking to him from this bush. And biblical scholars call this a theophany. That is a divine appearance by God to people where they have a visual representation of God as well as an audible voice of God actually speaking to them. It offers, um, it offers the possibility that doubt might be eliminated, right? That's what you would think. Maybe you guys have had experiences of this where you said, okay, God, I will do this if you would just give me a sign, right? If you would just turn this worship stand into a flaming cross, I'm there. I'm right on board, right? Well, we know from Moses that having something visibly in front of us doesn't necessarily guarantee we're going to believe. Okay, continuing on at verse 7. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up. Excuse me. To bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land. That's more like God. A God flowing, a land flowing with milk and honey. 
the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go. I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. God lets Moses know immediately the intentions that God has for Moses. God is calling Moses to be a prophet, one of the first prophets in Scripture. Now, a prophet isn't necessarily someone who tells the future. A prophet is someone who tells the truth, who shares the truth of what God is saying, and it might be to a group of people who aren't really excited to hear what God has to say. So that is what Moses is sharing. Excuse me, Moses is hearing from God. So let's continue with the conversation. Um, Let's see, verse 11. Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be a sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? Then what shall I say to them? So Moses hears the plan and right away doubts this call that God has given him. Appreciate the burning bush and everything and fuego. You know, that was awesome. But who am I to do this? Not only that, but who are you? This is where doubt can be seen loud and clear with Moses. Me? Really, God? Remember what happened last time I was in Egypt? Killed a guy, buried him in the sand, ran away. I don't really know if it's a great idea for me to be the one that goes back. And honestly, I can't blame him. I can't imagine resting in faith if those are the circumstances that I'm walking back into. So let's pick up this continued conversation. Verse 13 again. Moses says to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. The name you shall call me from generation to generation. So God lays it out there for Moses. Moses, it doesn't matter who you are, because I will be with you. And who am I? I am who I am. This is the Hebrew verb to be spoken twice, that we say Yahweh. That is what God is saying. And it can be translated a lot of different ways because it's the verb to be. And most commonly it's translated, I am who I am. But it also could be, I will be who I will be. Or I will be who I am. I am who I will be. And the last one seems the most likely option. In essence, I will be God for you. Not just God is present or God is, but that God will be faithfully God for you and with you. Now this word Yahweh is so holy for the Israelite people and actually for Jews today, those who speak Hebrew, When they write Yahweh down, they'll only write the consonants. They never write the vowels because it's too holy of a word to be written in completeness. It is such a holy word that they won't even speak the name Yahweh. Now, it's incredible when you think about this because God is saying 
to Moses, he's given him his most intimate, most vulnerable name. He's encouraging trust in the relationship that Moses and God have with each other. And Moses is encouraged, well, he at least disagrees. He could have just went and found some water, put the fire out, and walked away. But he doesn't. What does he do? He stays. He argues. He actually engages with God. And there's a give and take in this relationship between Moses and God where he tells God what his doubts are. And God doesn't want Moses to just necessarily mindlessly get up and follow him. But instead he wants Moses to bring whatever doubts he has and engage in conversation with, with God so that God can explain the faithfulness that will be with Moses as he moves forward. You would think that would be enough for Moses. All right. Saw a burning bush. Got the power of I am on my side. Let's do this. We're going to run this town, right? So let's look at the rest of this conversation. Chapter 4, starting at verse 1. Moses answered, What if they did not believe me or listen to me and say, The Lord did not appear to you? Then the Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? A staff, he replied. The Lord said, throw it on the ground. Moses threw it on the ground, and it became a snake, and he ran from it. Then the Lord said to him, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. So Moses reached out and took hold of the snake, and it turned back into a staff in his hand. This, said the Lord, is so that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. Moses throws another, what if, right back at God. What if they don't listen? And God says, all right, provides Moses with a little bit of proof, some proof. If they don't listen, then you have this, you can take this staff and throw it on the ground. And he also gives them another miracle he can perform so that they can believe him. So does that finally give Moses what he needs to be like, okay, I'll go do this. Let's pick it up. Verse 10. Moses said to the Lord, pardon your servant, Lord. I've never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I'm slow of speech and tongue. The Lord said to him, Who gave human beings their mouths? Who makes them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. But Moses said, Pardon your servant, Lord. Please send someone else. Then the Lord's anger burned against Moses and he said, What about your brother, Aaron the Levite? I know he can speak well. He is already on his way to meet you, and his heart will be glad when he sees you. You shall speak to him and put words in his mouth. I will help both of you speak and will teach you what to do. He will speak to the people for you, and it will be as if he were your mouth and as if you were God to him. But take the staff in your hand so you can perform the signs with it. So Moses isn't exactly ready. Dives in with a couple more objections. Well, I can't speak well. Finally, just completely blatantly, send somebody else. At this point, God understandably becomes a bit irritated. Yet, he provides Moses with some compromises for his doubts. He says, okay, fine. Your brother Aaron, he'll go with you. He can, he can um, speak for you, and that does the trick. Moses actually says, okay, I'm going to do this. And when he doubts, God does not reprimand Moses. For his unbelief, for his lack of faith. 
He takes the question seriously and he provides additional resources. What happens in the story? What does Moses do? To recap, we have seen Moses object in five different ways to God. No, I'm not going to do it. No, I'm not going to. What about this? What about this? I don't think I can do it. I don't know. It's just, it's not going to work. So contrary to what we see happen in the story of Moses, we would like to think that all we need is someone who's going to believe in us, right? That's what, that's what we're... That's what we have been taught. If we can't believe in ourselves, as long as we have someone else who can believe in us and encourage us, then we can do it. Then we'll be fine. Well, I have a visual example of this for you. Um, It's a video clip of two brothers, one of whom is really nervous about sharing his gift with the world, and his other brother wants to encourage him and tell him, you know, you can do it. I believe in you. So take a look at this video clip of... Two brothers, and uh, the desire one of them has to encourage the other one. For a second, he took on the shape of a unicorn. That's what we know to be true. If someone can encourage us in our faith or anything in our life, then we'll be okay. But if Moses, who had God audibly speak to him, from a burning bush, doubted what God had called him to. What hope do we have to be able to have faith without doubt? If there's anybody who claims that they have no doubt in their faith journey, I don't know if I can trust that. When we approach the story of Moses as Doubters Anonymous, that we all are, we can see Moses' real doubts are that he doesn't think he can be used by God. They are tied to the assumption that he can't do what God has called him to do. There are too many strikes against him, too many weaknesses. It would just require too much faith that God would show up in the midst of a pretty demanding job. What holds Moses back, what is tied to his doubt, is fear. Fear of what other people will think of him, what the Israelites, what the Egyptians will think of him. Fear is not good enough. Fear of failure. Moses is deathly afraid to fail. And if, if we take a look at faith and doubt and try and figure out, man, why if I'm super fired up about Jesus and the work that Jesus has done in my life and I want to, you know, walk the walk and tell everybody about the cross, but I'm also a little bit scared about it, so often our doubts are intimately connected to our fear of failure. What if it turns out I fall on my face? What if I look like a complete moron when I claim to believe in all of this stuff? What if God doesn't show up when I mess up? I think one of the most ironic things, or maybe unironic, or when the unexpected happens, uh, interesting, the most interesting things about what happens with Moses is that he has all these doubts and he presents them to God because he's just so afraid to fail. And then what happens next? Moses actually fails miserably. In chapter 5 of Exodus, Moses does what God called him to do. He goes before Pharaoh and he does the whole, let my people go stuff. And Pharaoh casts him out and actually he makes life even more miserable for the Israelites. Moses fails horribly, and he says to God, What the heck? 
Well, they didn't say that. God, my doubts are actually founded. In chapter 5, verse 22, Moses actually says, Why, Lord, why have you brought trouble on this people? Is this why you sent me? I told you this was going to happen. That's what I love about scripture. All our fears and our doubts are actually proven by what happens, which is interesting. But perhaps the reason that happens is because Moses needed to fail so that he could trust fully that God was the one that was going to show up. And not only that, maybe Moses failed miserably so he could realize it wasn't the end of the world. All he had to do was pick himself up, dust himself off, try again. Because that's what faith is. Even when there's doubt. What Moses shows up, shows us, is that our faith cannot be based on circumstances. Our faith has to be centered on a relationship with God. Our faith can't be based on the circumstances that everything's going great. Based on the fact I'm getting good grades, I have a lot of friends, I'm really popular, so my faith is doing really well. Our faith cannot be based in circumstances. Our faith has to be centered on our relationship with God. And that's what we see in the life of Moses. If you read through the rest of Exodus and see what happens into and throughout the life of Moses, there's a lot of arguing that keeps going on. But his faith is centered on his relationship with God. Is doubt that God can actually use you in all of your weaknesses, in your inability to overcome temptation, in your laziness, does that overwhelm you? Does that overwhelm you? What do you do in the, in the face of your doubt and your fear? Do you rely on yourself, your ability to continue on and persevere? Do you completely ignore them, just stay laying on the couch? Because if you don't engage your doubt and fear, then your worst doubt and fear will never come true, right? I'm someone who grew up in a Christian home. Um, I've really had a pretty engaged faith most of my life. If I'm honest, I really didn't have too many doubts about my faith until I came to college. The environment and the church I grew up in was pretty conservative, and it wasn't really encouraged for us to question our faith all that much, and so, frankly, I didn't. And also, the church that I grew up in, women were not in positions of leadership or teaching in the church at all. So I never really thought about working in ministry because I'm a woman. That's the way I was raised. When I got to college, I became really involved here at the inn, and I loved it. I loved serving. It was just a really exciting thing to be involved in. Um, And one day, Mike Gaffney, who used to be the director of the inn, I think I was a senior at the time, he just asked me flat out, have you ever thought about working in ministry, like as a job? And I was kind of taken aback and thought, well, I know I don't wear a lot of makeup, but you realize I'm a woman, right? Like... That comment and a couple of others actually started me on this journey of faith to explore the idea of working in ministry, but it was definitely a journey that was riddled with tons of doubt. I'd never even thought about the possibility before. And I started exploring the idea and asking questions of God, bringing to God my doubts and my fears about this as a possibility. But the more questions I brought, more doubts I had, 
the more confirmed I felt that this is actually something God was calling me to. And I'd never had experiences like this before, you know, God audibly speaking, Jenny, you can do it, or anything like that in my life. So this was a new thing, to feel a peace about pursuing some sort of call. So I gave it a try. I ended up um, applying for an internship and moved to Tennessee. That took a lot of faith, moved to Chattanooga. And I discovered just how much life I got from it, how much I enjoyed it. And every time I doubted that God wanted me to do this, that I was convinced I wasn't the right person for this. I was too weak. And I told God this every time I did that, God would show up. And along the way, more people encouraged me to kind of think about it. And I continued to question the validity of this call that people were encouraging me toward. And I felt like God had put in my life. And I ended up in seminary. And I learned even more about God and ended up with even more doubts and questions. It's great. Theological education really helps. But... I also discovered that there was scriptural and theological support for women in ministry in the church. I can very much relate to Moses because of the struggle that he had with this call that God had given him. I always, for myself, I always had this image of a backpack. I never felt like in the midst of this journey that God had put me on, I never felt like God was saying, okay, you have to be all in. I knew that God was telling me I could bring my doubt and my fear with me. I could have this backpack with me full of all the fear and the doubt I had, and sometimes it would be so heavy I couldn't handle it anymore. And I would come before God, and I would be so overwhelmed with doubt and questioning whether or not I was wrong, and I just didn't want to be a part of it anymore. And I would just throw it down at God's feet and say, I'm out. Send someone else. But in the midst of that, I never had the experience where God said to me, All right, Janie, I'm out too. Instead, what I realized is that God never stopped pursuing me with his love. And I always returned, sometimes excited, sometimes reluctant, to continue to pursue God And pursue this path that God had put before me. And if I'm honest with you, I always picked up my backpack. I always continued to carry it on my journey. Brought my fear and my doubt with me. And at this point in my life, on this faith journey that I'm on, still there. I still have doubts. I still have questions. I still fear that I am doing the wrong thing. Sometimes this backpack is really light. Sometimes it's so heavy that I can't even move forward. All I can do is fall backward. But I know that God is going to continue to be with me on this journey, continue to encourage me to bring my fear and my doubt to him. I've been struggling with this for 10 years. But I know that whenever I have these fears and doubts, what God wants me to do is remember that I can continually rely on God. That I can come back to God, and with this added weight, it's that much easier for me to stand on the hope that God has for me, that God wants to be with me, and that God wants to use me. 
God never told Moses that he actually had to get rid of his fear and doubt if he was going to be used by God. God allows Moses to bring his doubt and his fear along with him and allows the doubts to very slowly be replaced with more faith. That God would go before him. God would be with him no matter what circumstances he was in, no matter how many times he failed. It didn't happen all at once. But that is an amazing picture of God's grace. That is God's transformation. That's what it looks like for our doubts and our fears to slowly begin to transform into faith that God is with us and will be with us. That the covenant that God had with Abraham and Sarah, the covenant God had with Moses, the covenant that God had with the Israelites is the same covenant that God has with me. And it's the same covenant covenant and promise of relationship that God has with you. The more I have come before God with my honest, ugly, fear-filled doubts, thrown them at God's feet, the more I have felt God at work in my life. And slowly, very, very slowly, my doubts can be replaced by trust that God has called me and that God can use me. Because God's grace... God's renovation of our hearts is at work in our lives so that we are better able to stand on the hope that God will continue to be with us and fulfill the covenant that he has had through all of time. When it comes to faith and doubt and God's work within us, questions can expand our understanding. Uncertainty can actually lead to trust. Honest faith and doubt can lead to outrageous hope. Outrageous hope that God wants all of us, including our fear and our doubts. No matter how many excuses we have, no matter how much we kick and we scream and we say no, no matter how many times we say, send somebody else. God's pursuit of you will never stop. No doubt is too big. No fear is too great. Do you have doubts tied to a lack of faith that God can use you? Are there fears that you have of what other people will think? Fears that you're not good enough? Fears that God will not be able to use you, will give up on you? I want to give you some time tonight. Some time for you to be brutally honest with God. To maybe open up your backpack. Let the fear and the doubts that you have be revealed. Now I'm not saying that they're all going to be resolved tonight, but this is an opportunity for you to draw closer to God. To be honest with who you are, with what's going on in your faith journey. Allow God to know what your fear and your doubt looks like.